Father, we thank you that you hear the prayers of your children. Tell us that you incline your ear to us. You hear us when we cry out. You are so sovereign, you see the sorrow that lays on our hearts at times. You see that we are but dust, we are very fallible, we're frail, and we're so dependent on you to hold us and cause us to have life. And so, Lord, it is with somewhat heavy hearts, Lord, we surround our dear brother and sister, Josh and Victoria and little Grayson, with prayers pleading to our sovereign Father, who loves his children, to intercede on behalf of this little one. Father, there's many in this room as well that are going through difficulties. Some are going through treatments. Some are going through trials that don't seem to make sense. So we beg you, Lord, to comfort our hearts, cause us to run to you. At the same time, cause us to wait on you. Lord, strengthen Josh today as he leads his little family through this. We know he feels somewhat defeated tonight. He feels overwhelmed. And they're lacking in sleep and strength. We just pray you would encourage them. Lord, let us not forget as we leave this building to continue to pray for them and many others who are hurting, suffering, and recovering. It's one of the greatest things you've given us, Lord, is we can talk to you at any place, at any time. The veil's been torn and we walk into your presence. May we not waste that great blessing we have as your children. Do pray that you would heal Grayson. Give him life, Lord. Lord, give us strength. Now as we look at your word, we find comfort in the truth of a nation that, at least for this moment, follows you and obeys you and you dwell them with your presence. May we see your son in all of this and his glory as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 40. It is the last chapter in the book of Exodus. It's always fun, or at least for me it is. I get to the end of a book. It's uh, a lot of study and prep, and I, but I enjoy it. Wouldn't trade it for anything, but it is nice to get to the end of the book. I called this one, this title, this an earthly tabernacle ready for its heavenly king. And in that title is a, a, lot, of, <laughs> a lot of thought as I thought through this. It is a very earthly tabernacle. It's built by hands of men and women, and um, it's beautiful, um, especially made out in a desert. It's valuable. We saw last week how many tons of gold and silver and bronze are in this thing. It's got a lot of time and talent and spirit-driven talent as well put into this. And they're trying to prepare an earthly tabernacle for a heavenly king. And I think that's fitting because here on earth, uh, there is so much limitation. And particularly here, there was limitations of what they could do with God, how close they could get. But we praise the Lord that that veil was rent. 
Tonight we want to look at the climax of Exodus. It's, this is the end of this chapter of the nation of Israel. And the Lord has achieved his victory. He went into Egypt. He took his oppressed people, oppressed for centuries, at least, at least 250 years. They were under slavery, if not a little longer. And now he has made a way for himself, this holy God, to reside with a nation even despite their rebellion. He's given Moses a divine blueprint that's now been completed as we come to chapter 40. And God's glory is going to arrive in such a way to, to indicate and teach that he, is, he has given his approval and acceptance the way they carried out his commandments. But it's important to remember as we look at this that God is not dependent upon a temple made with human hands. God is transcendent. I love that word. There's nothing equal to him. He's greater than anything else. And he's not dependent upon us in any way. And that flows from everything we have on this earth to our salvation. He is never never depended upon his creation. In fact, when we speak of him, we often use terms like he is immense. That is one of the characteristics we study of God, immense. This reference to God speaks of his unequal comparison. There's nothing compared to him. Nothing can be or do like God is who fills all space and time. That's just think about that. He's not bound by time or space, and yet he fills all time and space. Another word we attempt to explain God in our finite wisdom is we've given him a term of omnipresence. And that indicates that God is present with every point of space in his entire building, uh, being, in, in, in his creation. He's He's, he's at every place and every point that he's created. So he's called the creator and possessor of all things throughout the Bible. There's a phrase that we find both in the old, particularly in the old, but then Stephen uses it in Acts chapter 7. He says this, the, a phrase that heaven and earth cannot contain him. That's immense, isn't it? He fills heaven and earth so that nothing is hidden from his presence. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Hebrews chapter 4 says, all things are laid bare before him of whom we have to do with. He dwells in and on his throne in heaven. Far beyond what we see as the heavens, he dwells there. But the scriptures record him descending from heaven and reminding us that he dwells in the midst of his people. And we'll see that today in a very magnificent way but he's far he's far from the wicked the psalmist says and he's close to the righteous isn't that fascinating he feels all time and space but yet the bible says he's far from the wicked and he's close to the righteous so for the glory of god to come and fill a tabernacle made by human hands and put his glory on display for a nation that easily rebels is somewhat encouraging. 
Because we easily rebel, don't we? We lack in faithfulness and trust. But this is just a precursor. When you study this, it's a precursor to the glory of God being revealed in His Son. It's a precursor to Him coming and dwelling with us permanently through the Spirit of God. What a fascinating to think, to think that as Paul works so hard, as we'll see in the book of 1 Corinthians, to, to remind us that we are His temple. And that glory of God resides in us through the Spirit of God. And just like they, they were to get the house in order. They were to be ready. And I think you'll find great encouragement as we think about Christ and His glory and the Spirit of God coming in such a way to fulfill this great truth even in our temple, our bodies, our life, our soul. Now, as we look at our points there, I think they're on the back of that worship sheet that you had. We see some basic instruction here going on and reminding us of the things that have taken place. So number one, the organization or, or organizing and anointing the tabernacle. 1 through 15. And so the construction of the tabernacle and all the furnishings, they've all been completed now. And, and now the instruction comes to, to give to how and where these fixtures should be placed. And God just has this precise way of doing things. They all teach something. And so he begins to instruct Moses of where they're to go, and Moses is instructing the people. Look at verses 1 through 2 as this all thing gets started. It gives us a little bit of understanding of some time frame. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the, of the month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meetings. Well, the first day of the month refers to the religious calendar that started when they came out of Egypt. And this really gives us an understanding of the time frame. They have now been... They've been out of Egypt. They left Egypt a year now. A year they've been out. And they've been out Mount Sinai for nine months. Here, before God, as Moses went up back and forth, meeting with God, getting these blueprints, and then finally constructing this. The first months uh, refers to this, this start of this calendar. This is where I brought you out of Egypt. This is where... The Passover lamb rescued you. The blood of that lamb rescued you. And this is the start of that. And now I want you to mark this time as well because there's a new start. I'm going to dwell with you. I'm not going to be up on some mountain there. I'm coming with you. Where you go, I go. In fact, I'm going to lead you. And so there's a new life here in a sense for the nation. And God is in their midst leading them. Next, Moses is told to begin setting up the tabernacle. And, and he starts, it's interesting, we'll see here in verses 3 through 5, he starts with the holiest items are put in place first and then they're covered so that they cannot be seen any longer. Notice in 3 through 5, you shall, take, you shall place the ark of the tes testimony there. You shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it and you shall bring in the lampstands and mount the lamps Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. And so they start inside out. They start with the ark and a covenant where the Shekinah glory is going to come and dwell between the cherubim there on top of the mercy seat. Such a beautiful picture taught. And then the instructions turn towards the courtyard and the previous instructions and the location of the 
altar of burnt offering was not really specified, but here it begins, God tells them exactly where to put it. Look at verse 5. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony, and you shall set a veil from the doorway of the tabernacle, and you shall set the altar of burnt offerings in front of the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. This is where the sacrifice would take place before you come in and bring that blood to the altar. And you shall set that laver between the tent of meetings and the altar and put, uh, and put water in it. And you shall set up the courtyard all around and hang all the veil for the gateway of the court. Then there was one more final step that was to be taken um, as they began to get this tabernacle ready for the divine presence of the Lord. And, and that was that was to be set apart. It was to be anointed. Chapter 30, verse 22, somewhere around there for a dozen verses or though, he talked about anointing each and every one of the items, that it would be set apart. Though it was built by man, God wanted it set apart for him. He would then no longer be part of just the realm of man. It's where God dwells. And it was, a, it was something set apart. Anointing gives that idea that this is given to God. It's for his divine presence. And not only the tabernacle would be anointed, but each article as well. Look at 9 through 11. And then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. You shall consecrate it and all the furnishings, and it shall be holy. And you shall anoint the altar, burn offering, and all the utensils, and consecrate the altar, and the altar shall be most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and its stand and... So everything's set apart here. Notice, it's interesting that the altar burnt offering in the courtyard, it, it was not actually even described till later on, but, but it's called to be the most holy place. And I thought about that. As I was studying that, I thought, wow, that's a, it's a pretty holy place. It's all pointing forward to the cross, isn't it? That's where the blood was shed of those lambs and the bulls and the blood of goats. All that would be on that altar and then brought in before before God and the Holy of Holies. And so it's to be holy. And he says, this is, this is not, although it's not inside the veil out here, and Jesus Christ was what? He was crucified outside the camp. And it's to be holy and set apart. Next, Moses is told to appoint priests as a group of men and set them apart for officiating all the duties of the tabernacle, 12 through 15. And then you shall bring Abraham and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. And you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. And you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him. Oh, excuse me, verse 14. And you shall bring his sons and put tunics on him and you shall anoint them even as you anoint their father. that They will minister as priests to me. And anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. And so here are these men that God is setting apart to come to him. To, to bring these offerings and this sacrifice into his presence that would hold off his wrath. There's a, a much more detailed account of this in Leviticus chapter 8 of the dedication of Aaron and his sons. But all of that, as we've studied through the book of Exodus, is pointing to the greater high priest. The one that does not have to cleanse himself. Does not have to sacrifice himself. Does not have to repeatedly go through all of those things, but can walk into the presence of the Father. And he did that one day. In a sense, bringing his own blood 
for the remissions of our sins. The second thought, as we see here, is the tabernacle is assembled. The tabernacle is assembled. Notice verse 16. Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. And so verse 16 records that Moses carried out just what God told him to do. Isn't that nice? Just as he told him to do, this is what he did. And he, he did it all. He did all the construction of all of the tabernacle and all of its parts. But chapter 14 starts to point to the assembly of this thing. And it seems that all the pieces are now, in these early verses, brought before Moses. He sees them. They're presented to the Lord. They're anointed. They're set apart. And now in verse 17, we start the assembly of these things. He says, now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And so, after nine months of the nation has been at Sinai, they are ready to assemble this thing. I'm not sure they were there, they were doing this the whole, um, well, I'm actually pretty sure they weren't doing it for the whole nine months. Um, If you take out the two periods of 40 days that Moses was up on the mountain, if you take out some of the covenant ratification ceremony uh, that's found in chapter 24, Um, If you take out the issue of the rebellion of the uh, golden bull calf and the few days it had had to take to get cleaned up, all that stuff, um, it seems it took about six months to build this beautiful tabernacle. And it's a beautiful tabernacle. It's full of poles that are overlaid with gold and rings and, and curtains and all made from things that they have that they came out of Egypt with that they freely gave to God as we saw last week. And so when you do the math, you begin to realize this probably took about six months to this nation to pull together and uh, these very equipped men and women, the, the spirit endowed to put together this beautiful tabernacle. And then I just want you to call your attention to the next seven paragraphs. And for the sake of time, I just want to refer to them. But at the end of every paragraph, because it starts going through all the things they made, the coverings and the mercy seat onto the ark, um, uh, the veils that are, that are hung, the lampstands and the oil and all the way down through it. But there's seven paragraphs and every one of them end with the phrase, just as the Lord commanded them. Just as the Lord commanded. And there's, there here, this, all this work has now come together as these people have obeyed God and Moses has led them to bring glory to him through obedience Verse 33, when you drop down to that, it says, He erected the court and all around the, tab- uh, all around the tabernacle, the altar, and hung all the veils at the gateway of the court, and thus Moses finished the work. So at the end of verse 33, uh, the book of Exodus, all that they've been through, they've come out of Egypt, they've, they've crossed seas and watched their enemy drown, they've been fed every, every morning by bread from heaven, God's given them meat. He's protected them from other warring tribes and nations around them. And he's brought them here at the base of Sinai. And he said, I want to reside with you, but I have to reside with you to protect my holiness. And so here's the blueprints for this. And now it's done. And now it's done. And we come to the great passage when the Lord arrives, his glory arrives. Number three is our point here. The arrival of the glory of the Lord I think this is the climax of everything, at least up to this point. They're certainly going to go on and make some terrible, grave mistakes. They're not going to trust the Lord, and they're not going to end up in the land for another 40 years and so forth. But at least in Exodus, this is a climax. The nation as a whole seems to be obeying God. 
they have seen that he brought them out of slavery, and then they, they saw their, that how easy it was for them to slip back into idolatry, and yet God forgave them and revowed his covenant to them. And now, and, and he now takes up residence with them in this, this earthly temple. And, and it truly is indicating that he has made this covenant that he's going to keep, and yet there's approval of what they've done. They've built this tabernacle to his specifications, and Moses has been the overseer, the mediator through all of that. Look at verse 34 with me. This is fascinating. Then the cloud covered the tent of meetings. It's just, it's so simple here, but this had to be so spectacular. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so what that's telling us is the cloud that had been on top of Mount Sinai there for the last nine months, really, since God had been meeting with Moses there, that, that, that cloud filled with fire and, and lightning and so much that people backed up when, when God was there and they moved their animals back and they set boundaries to be from that. That, that cloud moves from that. Uh, again, remember Moses had to veil his face because certainly the glory of God shone brighter than the sun. All of that moves from that mountain and fills that tabernacle. I thought about this as a man, no, no longer are they just at a, at a mountain. They're, the tabernacles become a miniature Mount Sinai and it's movable. Because you can't take the mountain to the promised land. So God is here with them in a spectacular way. And, and, and we've studied them and we realize that they're a hard and stiff-necked people. We've seen the terms God's used about them. We've seen him tell Moses, I'm about ready to wipe them all out and start over with you. And Moses comes forward in that great sovereign plan of God to show that, no, I'll be a mediator. I'm here, God. Don't, don't turn your back on us. Don't let the nations laugh at you. Now here in all of his glory, all of his person, all his transcendent qualities of him come in, in a visible way and they fill this temple, this tabernacle and the Lord's presence with him. And he's not limited to a single site anymore and he's going to go with them. In fact, he's going to lead them. Look at verse 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meetings because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There it is, a phrase again. He said that two, two verses in a row. The glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. And even Moses, who, who had enjoyed these magnificent times of close fellowship with the Lord on Mount Sinai, he's not even able to go near this. It gives you a sense that there was something greater even about this. I think it's looking forward to something greater. And so it had a greater fulfillment even in this tabernacle. And just like Mount Sinai, I think Moses wasn't able to go near God for quite some time. You remember the first time he goes up the mountain, he waited down on the mountain a little ways for about six days before God called him, summoned him into his presence. God always calls people into his presence. You just don't come on your own. So we find in Leviticus 1 that there God divinely summons Moses back into his presence in the tent of meeting. But here in this verse, verse 35, we see the second mention of the glory of the Lord filling this tabernacle. 
And my, my eyes just see the same of the mountain as that just everyone takes a step back. There's nothing like him, right? All the dead gods of the Philistines and all the countries and nations around them are just wood and stone. Nothing can do anything like this. Their God is now dwelling with them in authority and power. Moses had early called out God to say, remember he said, show me your glory. I can't do this. I can't go with these stubborn people. I can't do this. If you don't come with me, I'm not going to go. You've got to show me your glory. God set him on a mountain in that great display of power that he had on there, and he came away seeing the great attributes of God. But here we see the power of God in this cloud, in this pillar by night, this cloud by day, representing the, the, an immenseness of God in their presence. And it's a spectacular sight. It's a few short verses, but it isn't hard to look at this and think about what we're seeing. The Bible says that God is a God of unapproachable light, unapproachable light. Can you imagine what this was like? They did not have sunglasses at that time, so they're doubtlessly the blaze of the glory of the Lord filling this tabernacle must have been awe-inspiring and overwhelming. Notice verse 36 and 37. Throughout all their journeys, you can see Moses is writing this later. He's summing this up. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. And so the Lord's presence is in their midst. He's controlling influence on them. He is the controlling influence on this entire nation. I like that. They don't do anything without him. They don't go anywhere. They don't move without God. Wouldn't that be nice to be said about us? find myself praying that prayer many times in big decisions, but do we pray about that in small decisions? Lord, I'm not going unless you go with us. See, he's a covenant-keeping king. And he determines the direction of his people. And they follow him. Look with me at the book of Numbers. I want to just skip forward just a little bit because there's a little more detail in Numbers chapter 9 about this. Doubtlessly, the Spirit of God inspires Moses to write in times in the desert. And as they come up to the promised land after these 40 years of wandering, Moses is recording things by the inspiration of the Spirit. But in verse 15, we start to see this cloud and this pillar and how it leads the people. Notice verse 15. Now on, on, that, on the day that the tabernacle was erected and the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and in the evening it... it it was, it was like an appearance of a fire over the tabernacle until morning. So this gives us a little more detail what this looks like. And it was continuously. And the cloud would cover it by day and the pillar fire by night. And whatever the cloud was lifted up over the tent. And afterwards the sons of Israel would set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, the sons of Israel would camp. And at the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. And long, as long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the commandment of the Lord, they remained camped. Then, according to the commandment of the Lord, they set out. 
If, something, if sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. And whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camp and did not set out. But when it was lifted... They did set out at the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the commands of the Lord through Moses. And so this is a big ordeal, right? He completely had the overwhelming influence over this nation. What a great picture that is. Lord, we want to go where you go. We want to stay where you stay. Let us not get ahead of you. Too many of us have spent time out in the desert wandering around when the Lord wasn't with us. We chose to get ahead of the Lord. We failed to pray to an almighty, transcendent God and ask Him for help. We failed to search the Word of God to know who He is and to understand Him. And we find ourselves often wandering and sometimes making tremendously poor decisions. We need God to lead us. He's given us His Savior. He's the head of the church. We, the elders, are His galley rowers. We pull on the oars as He calls the strokes from the Word of God. That's that's how He leads us. And that's why we should lead as a church. And look, brothers and sisters, that's how your life should be led. Are you listening to the Word? How valuable is your opinion over the Word of God? Because 40 years in the wilderness is a long time. And there's people who spend a lot of their life wandering because they don't know their God. I encourage you tonight, make a commitment to know the Word of God. Study it. Be a student of the Word of God. He's given us everything we need to know for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1 says. He's given us everything. Everything we need for salvation and everything we need for the daily stuff. Search Him. Ask Him. Study His Word. He's not hiding His truth from you. And by the way, rebellion will always confuse you. Rebellion will always send you into a dry country. Rebellion is knowing what God says to do, but do something different. That's rebellion. Yes, we will sin we will make mistakes we will stumble at times we are but flesh and we are but dust but rebellion is different rebellion says i know what you said god but i want to do it this way and i will not seek you for your counsel i will go about my own way you will find yourself in a desert for a very very long time until you repent but right now the nation walks with him It's pretty amazing as we go further into the Pentateuch, we'll see that many years get covered very quickly, but there's times of rebellion. But here they seem to do what the Lord says. And I love those seven statements. I have them marked in my Bible. I have them numbered. Just as the Lord God had commanded them, so they did. Oh, what a good statement. Lord, command us through your word and let us obey you. Look at the final verse here, verse 38. For throughout all their journeys... You can just see Moses writing this towards the end of his life. Throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day 
and there was by and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel. I thought about that. I thought, Lord, there are some really rough years. A lot of rebellion. There's times snakes come into the camp because they've rebelled again. And yet he stays with them. And Moses writes here, out of all of their journeys, the cloud did not remove. The fire was always with them. See, this is a fulfillment of a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises. Way back in Exodus 29, Moses told Excuse me, God told Moses, he said this, verse 45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and be their God. Singular. <laughs> Opposed to all the pagan nations and the, and the plurality of gods that they had, I will be their God. I will dwell among them. And they shall know that I am the Lord, verse 46, their God. And they shall know that I brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them, for I am Yahweh their God. What a statement. What a gracious God. With people who so easily seem to slip away. So the Lord's dwelling among His people. And He seems to find pleasure to be with His people. And the people should find pleasure that their God is there. And I think this final note here in Exodus is one of optimism. I'm with you. Obey me. I told you how to build a temple. You did that. Now obey me. I'm with you. I'm going to take you to the promised land. I'll wipe out your enemies. I'll give you homes you did not build, orchards you did not plant. I will meet your needs. And I think there's just a statement of optimism at the end of this um, great book of Exodus. I think they have confidence in the Lord, but they fail in time to obey him. They have a real privilege, don't they? I mean, it's unique what God did with the nation of Israel. They had a real privilege to have them there, and yet there's still restrictions. Sometimes you maybe read this, oh, that would have been marvelous. What a, th- what a thing to see. Yeah, well, wait a minute. There was a veil. And there's calves dying every year and lambs. And there's a God that is holding off his wrath year after year. And we're reminded that this tabernacle was built by the hands of men. And though it housed the presence of God, there were physical barriers to God and spiritual barriers to God. Constant sacrifice needed to be taken place in the courtyard. Veils that separated you. Only a high priest could come into that presence of God. He was limited. But that's all pointing towards a greater plan, our Lord Jesus Christ. The greater high priest to a greater tabernacle, to a greater covenant. One that does not have to be seared by blood of calves and lambs and bulls. Look at our last thought here, and I want to just close with pointing towards Christ. Number four, the full accessible glory of God is in the face of Christ, should be seen in the face of Christ. Well, first of all, his birth is spectacular, isn't it? It's, it's normal in one way because he represents us. He is the second Adam. He's come to undo what the first Adam did. He's born of a woman, born under the law. Um, 
born with un, not a lot of fanfare by the world. In fact, very few people even know he has been born. But these angels show up, right? And they've, they've come from the glory of the Lord. And they shine because they've been in the presence of Yahweh. And they, with great enthusiasm, announce the coming of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you begin to see the glimpse of the glory of this Lord, this glory of this one who now is going to be among his people again. It's been dark years, 400 years of silence. Nobody's heard from God, no prophets, nobody. And now there's this glimmer of hope and these angels who reflect the glory of God make this tremendous announcement that there is one born who's going to reside with his people and save them from their sins. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we see glimpses of his full glory. But mostly what we see is him as our representative. He hungers, he thirsts, he heals, he cares for people, he shepherds, he teaches. But every once in a while, we see his glory transfigured in front of him. There's no better passage to see that than Matthew 17 or Luke chapter 9. There he takes his inner circle of disciples and they end up on top of the mount there. Peter, James, and John are there and they're sleepy-eyed and not paying a whole lot of attention. Jesus is about to announce his next exodus. (laughs) He's about ready to leave this world. And guess who appears with him? Moses. Moses, the one who did not get to go into the promised land. But Moses, the one who saw the glory of God, though veiled on that mountain. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you because no man looks on me and lives. Of course, Moses came away seeing the great character of God. But here on this mountain, I thought it was fascinating, let alone the disciples and what they were doing. They're half asleep as they look and see, as Luke records, or excuse me, Matthew and Mark record, that they, he shone like brighter than the sun. But there in the midst of that is Moses and Elijah. <laughs> and though we know Moses was with God before this, isn't it interesting that he sees now the full radiance of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. If you were there and asked Moses, he would say, this was ten times better. (laughs) This is the full radiance. This is everything God is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who is going to make the ultimate sacrifice. He's going to lay his life down once and for all. He'll undo all of the stuff that came before him and he'll finish it. I've often looked at the Mount of Transfiguration through the eyes of the disciples, and today I looked at it through the eyes of Moses. And I thought that had to be an amazing day. An amazing day as he saw, oh, this is what this was all pointing towards. And certainly he knew it by that time, I would imagine. But Moses' faith now really is sight, isn't it? All the experience on the mountain, all of the experience with the tabernacle pales as he sees the Lord Jesus Christ as the full radiance of the Father's glory. And he has a conversation with them. Luke chapter 9, 30 through 31 says it this way, And behold, two men were walking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
So, so here Moses was all part of the Exodus, right? He was the mediator. He's the one who God said, go in and get my people out. You are going to lead this great Exodus. And here, uh, 2,000 years later, 1,500 years later, here is Moses talking about the Exodus of Jesus from the world. Fascinating, isn't it? Notice they're talking about this Exodus and Moses and Elisha are sharing this moment of revelation on this mountain with these sleepy-eyed Peter, James, and John, and the full glory of Jesus is on display. Verse 32 in that same chapter says, Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. The other writers say he's shown like brighter than the sun. Clearly Moses had seen the full glory of God in the face of Christ. There's a lot of other things that you could point to in the glory of the Lord, but some of the things that I just thought about as I was working, finishing this up today, I thought, what about the upper room? There were not flashes of glory that seems to be in that room, but here is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the one who beat sin, Satan, and death. They're afraid. They're in the upper room. He walks through locked doors and stands in their presence. I think that's glorious. And, and, and they tremble at him, right? The Bible tells us they thought they've seen a ghost of some sort. And the way he dispels that, he says, oh, look. See my hands and my side. See my feet. This bodily resurrected Savior with his resurrected body that you and I will see him in some day. Someday as we go to be with him, he's standing in the presence of the 11. I think that was probably a glorious day. It wasn't soon after that, the Spirit of God fills those men. And these men who are afraid and huddled in this upper room become bold as lions. And they go preach to the killers of Christ and thousands of people come to know Jesus Christ as a personal Savior and the church is birthed. And the glory of the Lord continues to be shared. Paul comes along, Acts 9, riding his little donkey or whatever he's on, headed to Damascus to go wipe out the church. Guess what comes? The glory of the Lord shone around him and knocked him off his steed. And though those who were with him saw the bright light, he heard the voice of Jesus. And the glory of the Lord was exposing himself to Paul. And Paul was never the same. It transformed him like it transforms all believers. And he became passionate about preaching the gospel. In fact, he became passionate about preaching the gospel to the synagogues, going to the synagogues, teaching them their history with their relationship with God, but showing a biblical theology that it all pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he preached passionately time and time again. And this is the things that came out of his mouth. You could hear this being said in the synagogue at Corinth, possibly. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Imagine they didn't really care for that. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Now listen to what he's blinding them from. Listen to what Satan does not want them to see. So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, We've seen better stuff than they did. When you got saved, God showed you his glory. And he showed you, here's my glory. He's the son. He's offered his life for you once and for all. 
There's nothing more glorious than that. And Paul says this is the full-time job of Satan to stop people from seeing the light, the glory of the gospel, and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Two verses later, he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Oh, that God. Genesis 1 God. Yeah, that God. Is the one who has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's the greatest thing that ever happens to us. That day when God exposes you to his son and you go, he did die for me. Oh, that's glorious. New life. Dead people come alive. It didn't get any better than that. These people in Exodus wandered around and died, most of them. They rejected God's word. They walked around in the wilderness for 40 years till the older generation died off because they didn't believe. And they saw a fascinating, unbelievable thing as the glory of God filled the temple, but it wasn't enough. (laughs) Oh, not for us. If you're saved in here today, God shone in your heart the glorious light of Jesus Christ. You looked into the face of God and saw Christ. What a statement. There's nothing more glorious than that. Can you imagine Paul in the city of Colossae and this church plant that begins and writing writing a letter to this church plant that's going, desiring them and full idolatry around them. He says, look, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Just exactly what Jesus said to Philip. When are you going to show us the Father? Oh, Philip, have I not been with you so long and you still ask me that? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the full display, right? He's the fullness of the deity. It dwells in him in bodily form, and that bodily is so important. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not some spirit being out there. He's in bodily form. You're going to touch him, see him. You're going to have a relationship with him throughout eternity in his physical body, with your physical body that he resurrects. 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us the beauty of God and his holiness. Verse 16, speaking of God and related it to Christ as well in the context, he says, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light. And speaking of God, he says, of whom no man has ever seen, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen. And yet, in this same God says in Isaiah, I will not share my glory with another. And then we come to the book of John, and John says we beheld his glory, all right? Full of grace and truth. He became flesh, and he dwelled among us. And John, so passionate, writing behind most of the writers now, most of them have been martyred and gone, and says, we saw his glory. He's using the same terms of Exodus. It's even better. He's the only begotten from the Father. He's full of grace and truth. When you get to the book of Revelations and we see this tremendous vision that God gives the Apostle John, we see in chapter 5, verse 13, that every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under earth that's just, and on the seas and, and everything in them is a statement of all inclusion, right? There's nothing that's not going to see this glory of God. And I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory. Glory. The the one who has all the glory is given glory by all those 
who bowed down and he saw the four living creatures, they kept saying, Amen, and the elders, which I think is the church, fall down and worship him. What a beautiful thing. And then the great letter closes out and almost closes out in chapter 21, 23, and you find this city that needs no sun, no moon to shine, for the glory of God has illuminated and its lamp is the Lamb. Oh, he's glorious, isn't he? And the Bible says in 1 John, John again, when we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Look, church, I want to encourage you tonight. Love the glory of God. And like us, and I know in our family and people that we know and have relationships with, we know people who have never seen his glory. And often, you heard me say this before from the pulpit, when sometimes it's frustrating when you have a family member or someone you love dearly who doesn't know Jesus. And here's just a simple aspect. They've just not seen his glory. Oh, he's a good man. There may be or may not be a historical Jesus, but at least the legends about him are encouraging. People will say that. They've never seen his glory. They've never tasted the power of forgiveness that he holds. They're not forgiven people. See, people who have seen his glory have seen his forgiveness. That's, that's, that makes his glory bright because you and I know what we deserve, right? Wages of sin. It's death. It's eternal death. So, so we see his glory in that he forgave us of all of our sins, of all of our transgressions. He's wiped them away. We see a his glory that he, in that the way he perfectly loves us. His love doesn't fail. His love is perfect in every way. It doesn't wane. It, it doesn't come and go. It's, it's not based on performance. You've seen his glory because you see a God, a Savior, a God Savior who loves you like nobody else. You've seen his glory because you have a peace that passes, away, passes all understanding, surpasses all understanding. Things are going crazy out there in our world. Suicide rates through the roof. People don't know what to do. They're afraid. They drive in their cars with the door shut and windows up and mask on. I understand you. Some need to wear masks. You, you need, I, I get it. I'm not against that. If you've got a health issue and it helps you, then great. But, uh, but let's get down to the heart of the issue. Where's your heart? And, and the world's just lost in these areas. They're lost in these areas. There's no hope. Clinical psychology, I was reading just a week or two ago, said they're so stacked up with people, they can't get to the numbers of people who are begging them to meet with them or they're going to end their lives. Psychology has nothing for the heart. They have nothing to offer them except pills probably. Oh, you've seen his glory because you have a peace. And I'll, you, know, you give that peace up. Do you give it up every once in a while because you worry and fret over things? You don't resolve issues between other people. You give it up every once in a while. But then you repent and you, and you say, Lord, I don't like this. I don't like wandering in this desert. I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I want that peace of knowing you are with me, right there with me. And you repent of that sin and you, you receive that peace again. It passes all understanding. Look, we're dead people made alive. 
that we have new life. We are creatures, new creatures. And so we've seen his glory. So there's no turning back. And guess where his glory is leading us to? The promised land. (laughs) A heaven where he'll be the lamp for all time. Where there'll be no sickness and sorrow. There will be no death. There will be no separation. His glory is leading us like a beacon there. Run the race. Let the word of God be the lamp to your path. Run the race. Finish the race. Worship him forever. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the book of Exodus. We have learned so much. We've been able to connect it to this beautiful biblical theology that flows to your son. And yes, there are some spectacular things you have done in this. You've split seas and wiped out entire armies. You fed millions of people day after day out of the thin air with a wafer. (laughs) You've given them water out of rocks. The shoes don't wear out. Their clothing doesn't wear out. You protect them from nations that are greater and stronger and meaner. And yet it all flows to something even better. (laughs) It flows to the Lord Jesus Christ who can bring us into the presence of the Father for eternity. And so Lord, I pray that we, River Bend Community Church members here, people who know that we've seen your son's glory. We've been forgiven. We've been given a peace with the Father. The war is ended between us and you. You've given us a heart of flesh. You took out that heart of stone and put a heart of flesh so we can love, and it now beats for you. And we trust you. And so, Lord, we know that you are leading us to the true promised land. One that Many of our brothers and sisters have gone before and are there now. And we long to join them. And yet, Lord, you've left us the manuscript, the perfect word of God to be a light to our path. So we know how to walk and not stumble. We know how to confess our sins and be right with you. We know how to not end up in the desert for too many years. We have a glorious God who loves us and guides us who gave us his own spirit, who spotlights Jesus and his word. And we never separate that. So Lord, I pray for each and every one that's here, those who are watching um, tonight, Lord, that we would be men and women, boys and girls, young people, that love and enjoy the presence of God. And we want to walk with you. And so Lord, help us obey your word. Give us a joy to do that. And Lord, we'll turn that blessing around and bring it as praise to you. Thank you for this time together. Lord, we close by just remembering baby Grayson one more time, Lord, as a congregation. We plead with you. Help each and every one of us to be mindful before we lay our heads down to pray for Josh and Victoria and Grayson today. Pray for family. Some are even here tonight. Grandparents. Great-grandparents that are hurting for their children. I pray you would 
Encourage them and strengthen them, Lord. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.